0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy summer, everyone. And today we have another installment of our summer series. Our roundtable discussion today is focused on standards-based grading. Like I mentioned with SEL in our last episode, to understand standards-based grading is to simply say it backwards. It's grades based on the achievement of standards. In my now 30 years in education, there is nothing that rivals grading in terms of the emotional, almost primal responses the topic elicits from both educators and non-educators alike. No one seems to be neutral when it comes to grading. There is no shortage of grading opinions or grading philosophies. As well, the term grading itself has come to represent both a noun, as in a symbol or summary that represents a particular achievement level, or a verb, as in the act of a teacher reviewing the demonstration of learning to determine its quality, as in grading papers. So while conversations about grading seem to be ubiquitous, it is also one of the most misunderstood aspects of our profession. So here in the roundtable today to help us sort this out are Elaine Clower, Megan Knight, and Caitlin Giordano. Elaine Clower is the Director of Academics and Instructional Programs at San Benito High School in Hollister, California. She works closely with secondary teachers on teaching, learning, grading, and assessment and specifically on helping teachers embrace a standards-based mindset. Elaine has led the district initiative on grading practices for the past four years, which will result in full implementation by all teachers by the 2022-23 school year. Dr. Megan Knight is an adjunct instructor at Upper Iowa University and an instructional coach at North Scott Schools in Eldridge, Iowa. Megan has taught secondary special education, she's taught English, as well as undergraduate and graduate level education courses. Megan has received three distinguished research awards from the Iowa Educational Research and Evaluation Association for her work in the area of standards-based grading, and her publications have appeared in the NASP Bulletin, the ASCD Express, and the Journal of Educational Leadership in Action. And finally, Caitlin Giordano is a middle level language arts educator and the director of a curriculum and instruction for the Teach Better team. Caitlin is a dynamic educator who is passionate about student voice and empowerment, she's passionate about promoting equity and valuing teachers as professionals. Caitlin has presented at various state and national conferences on assessment and grading, language arts instruction, social emotional learning. equitable teaching practices listeners be sure to check out the show notes for elaine megan and Caitlin's social media handles as well as all of their other contact information all right let's talk standards-based grading joining me today to talk about standards-based grading sound grading practices or sound assessment practices or whatever label you want to slap on that Uh, we're here to talk about grading and assessment and this is going to be a great conversation joining me today are Elaine Clower.
1: Good morning, Tom.
0: Good morning. Great to see you, Elaine. We've also got Megan Knight.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, great to have you here, Megan, and as well, Caitlin Giordano joining us Hi. as well. Uh, good Hi there, morning. so
2: happy to join you.
0: Yeah, great to have you here as well and looking forward to this conversation. What I'm really excited about is that each of you really does bring a kind of different perspective and a different lens and a different set of experiences. And I think that's going to make for a very rich uh, conversation. So thanks to all of you for being here today. And of course, as you all know, uh, and listeners you know as well, assessment and grading are near and dear to my work, near and dear to my heart. Uh, so like I said, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I wanna begin with this notion of standards-based grading, which I think has kind of spiraled in a way. Um, it's not new conceptually, Uh, even in implementation, uh, standards-based grading is not new. We've been teaching to standards for the better part of two decades in North America and quite literally around the world. And standards-based grading has been implemented in so many different places. So, Elaine, I want to start with you. Um, And the question I want to pose to you is, why is standards-based grading still so controversial here in 2021?
3: You know, it's interesting when you break it down that way and you make it sound so simple. We have these standards, we've had these standards for a while, It's been decades, right? Two decades we've been working with standards. So, why is it controversial? Um, You know, with the work that we've done in our high school, what I noticed was we don't talk about grades. And so, once we got everybody in a room and we started having the conversation around what does a grade actually mean, is when we saw so many opinions and so many varying ideas of what does a grade represent. And that ultimately started uh, what our team would say is we opened Pandora's box when we had this conversation. And it did become controversial or confrontational, and most people will shy away from that. But as soon as we started to dig deep, we actually noticed we had a lot more similarities than differences when it came to ultimately what a grade should represent. So that's the question that really, to me, makes it controversial is what does a grade actually represent? And then secondly, grades are personal that is your currency in your classroom. And so it's very much like a parent, how I parent my children and the rules and procedures I put together in my household. Many times in the classroom, grades are are that, um, what represents what's going on in the classroom. And so to be able to touch that or have conversations around the inequities that grades may have, um, it becomes deeply personal and then therefore a bit controversial.
1: And, Elaine, I love what you said about it being very personal and and when I think about standards based grading and how it's become um, controversial, I think that it, it really strikes at our very core as teachers. Um, a lot of us became teachers, because we really want our students to be successful academically and um, in terms of success beyond the classroom, um, so let me let me preface by saying when i talk about standards-based grading i usually talk about three main components of standards-based grading so there's grading based on the standards and making sure that it's an accurate representation of the standards and then it's separating those academic grades and those behavior grades to make those more clear and more accurate and then the third component is allowing multiple chances for students to reach proficiency and so where i think Um, I I don't think people struggle as much with that first component of grading based on the standards. Uh, Like you said, Elaine, and, and like you said, Tom, we've been grading, we've been using standards for a while. So I don't think people are surprised that we're assessing and that we're grading based on those standards. But then when you start thinking about separating those grades and those academic grades from the behavior grades. And when you think about allowing multiple chances for students to reach proficiency, that's where I think the controversy comes in. And that's where I think um, people maybe misunderstand that they have to throw out those core values. And and Elaine, I like what you said about finding some common ground there, because I do think that we still have a collective, um, we still have a collective goal that we're trying to reach and making our students be better at their academics and at their behaviors. But in the end, we just need to find a better means to get there. And so I think it can be really scary because we've been doing the same thing for over a century. And so it can be really scary to try to find a new path to get our students to be successful. And so sometimes I think that's where the controversy hits is that we're afraid we have to get rid of those values, but we don't.
2: Yeah, Megan, I completely agree with both of you. And I think it's this nostalgia factor that almost comes in. This idea of this is how it was done when I was a student or this is how I've been doing it for so long that we're so familiar with it. And it's something that we're so comfortable with, something that's almost become like ingrained in the school system. The idea that we need to have a GPA, the GPA is so important, having these letter grades, having this currency, as you called it, Elaine, it it has always existed. It's what we've always done. It's what we've become familiar with. Mm -hmm. And we've all kind of got our own relationship with that as well. So it does become very personal. And you're you're really dismantling not just this practice of grading and assessment and changing the way you're doing it, but you're also dismantling and changing the way people view the classroom and education as a whole. Because so much rides on that GPA and on that grade that we have to rethink where we're going to go from here. So the controversy begins with this conversation. But then as you said, it's like a Pandora's box where so much just kind of adds on to that conversation. And it becomes so much bigger than just we need to grade differently.
0: It is such an interesting that you all sort of talked about it being personal. And I remember back when I you know, was going through my teacher training, there was no assessment training, there was no training on grading. And so what you end up doing is the first thing I did was I mimicked my high school history teachers and they said, well, what did my teachers do to me? Like, how did they grade? And then pretty soon you, you get with your department and you start to learn. And it's almost through immersion that you you just sort of develop these grading habits that aren't based on anything other than sort of historical context or thinking about past practice. And it does become so personal partly because we had to make those decisions, right? We had to decide how to handle late work. We had to decide, or we reflected on our own experience. And because it's so personal, uh, we end up taking it Personally, when somebody proposes that, we make the change, right? Because we made that decision. But I've, I, you know, Megan, you talked about, you know, grading based on standards. And I've been saying to pe- people for years that don't make a meal out of it when people say, well, what is standards based grading? Just say it backwards. It's grading based on these standards. And if we've been teaching to standards for the better part of 20 years or more in some jurisdictions, I'm not sure why we wouldn't want grades to be based on those standards that you're teaching to. And if this would be maybe another fair question, if your grades have not been based on the standards you've been teaching to. It would be fair to ask, what exactly have those grades been based on? So this leads me to uh, Megan, the, the second sort of question today, which is the misunderstandings. Because I think sometimes when you say standards-based grading, people have a narrative in their, you know, in their minds about what it means, and there are all sorts of definitions. So, from your perspective, Megan, what are some of the key misunderstandings about standards-based grading? And, and more importantly, where do you think those misunderstandings have come from?
1: So let me start by answering that second part of that question. Okay. And Elaine mentioned the word currency earlier. And, and I think that that really strikes at the heart of where a lot of those misunderstandings come from. Um, we come from, like all of us have mentioned, a, a tradition of grading. And, and I think that... Uh, typical mindset is that we see grades as compensation instead of seeing grades as communication. And so that's where I think a lot of the misunderstandings of standards-based grading come from, is that we have this notion that grades are meant to be compensation, that they should be rewarding hard work and that they should be rewarding good behavior and that they should be used to um, motivate students to do the things that we need them to do. And so I think it, it takes that that shift in mindset um, to really start to overcome some of those barriers and start to see grading for what it ideally should be. And that's communication. Uh, so that said, I think that one of the biggest misunderstandings is that people often think that standards based grading is soft, that we've uh, we've gone soft on the students and that. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, uh, it, it's just a system of endless do-overs and a lack of accountability in that. Um, it's its just kind of a free-for-all. That's kind of the misunderstanding. And if you take that example of that second component of separating the academics and the behaviors, for example, uh, if we see grades as compensation, then that makes sense as to why that would be a struggle to wrap our brains around because um, we're no longer, when when we separate we have an academic grade and we have a behavior grade. Uh, we see that as a way to motivate students to do better. And so I think that there's a fear there that once we take that away, we can no longer use that to motivate students. Mm -hmm. And, and the truth is that we just have to find a different way to get students to have those, those good work habits. And so, um, when we start to separate that we're really just we're seeking a more accurate way of communicating those and you know i can already kind of hear hear the yeah buts and i and i hear it a lot that you know yeah but when you separate that academic grade nobody cares about it nobody looks at it nobody cares about it no one else cares about it nobody talks about it and and what i would say to that is why don't they look at it and care about it? And I think some of that goes back to us as the teachers and us as a system. Uh, Students value what we talk about and what we immerse ourselves in. And so one of the big fears of standards-based grading that we're going soft and that we're, we're not valuing these work habits is, is somewhat on us because we need to be the ones to value those work habits. We need to immerse it in our conversations every single day with students. It needs to be what we celebrate with students. We need to make sure that we're constantly having those conversations about why what we're doing is important, why completing our work is important, why um, studying is important. and And yeah. we need to make sure that we're always really immersing that with our students and and teaching them how to be uh, how to yeah. be more responsible Not um you. what are we talking about in our emails home in our conversations with students when we introduce a new concept and then to that end i would also say um, we need to do something with that so if we want to record the work habits or behavior grade or whatever you want to call that if you want to record that separately then we need to do something with that so you know if the student is getting a lower grade academically usually there's an intervention team or somebody somewhere is looking at that data hopefully and doing something about it and saying what can we do to get those kids to the next level and we need to do that with our work habits as well if we're going to record it we need to value it we need to do something with it and we need to help our students improve in that area
0: You bring up such a good point, uh, Megan, about attention. And um, Caitlin, I'm gonna throw this question to you as well about misunderstandings, but you make me think of something I've been saying ad nauseum for years, which is what adults pay attention to is what children or students or teenagers will eventually believe is important. And I think that you're spot on when you talk about the fact that when we're dismissive of the work habits, once they're uh, separated, the behavioral attributes, those characteristics, if we don't give them the kind of attention and prioritization that they deserve, the students and the parents aren't going to see them as being of value either. So Caitlin, what about from your perspective, key misunderstandings that people have about standards-based grading?
2: Yeah, so Megan, you really brought up the big one. And from the, the teacher perspective, it's, it's a, it sounds different, but it's essentially the same thing. And it's, oh, well, your class is just easy then. Like, oh, your class is just going to be so easy for all the kids to get an A. Everybody's going to do amazing. And they're all going to have so many opportunities to just get everything done. And then everyone will get an A. Your class will become the easy class. And to me, that is problematic for two reasons. Number one, it's not going to be easy. In fact, my students themselves have told me like, oh my gosh, your class is like, it's hard. Like I actually have to learn it and show you that I know how to do it. Like it's not enough for me to just get the right number of points and get compensated for that with my A. I genuinely have to show you that I know how to do the skill that you've taught in order to do well. So it's not that it's easy per se in that regard. And then the other piece is that we have this notion that every kid doing well in our class is bad. And I cannot for the life of me figure out why we think that's bad. I want my students to all learn and be successful and do well. So why would I not celebrate the fact that all of them are successful and are achieving and are mastering and progressing on the skills that I'm teaching them? That's exactly what I want to have happen. So why would that be a negative thing? And then the second piece or the second misunderstanding that I hear a lot from specifically classroom teachers that are looking to implement this is I'm going to spend all my time giving feedback on student work. I'm not going to be able to do anything else. My assessment is going to take forever. And while it is an undertaking to put the system in place, it is something that does take time, does take energy, does take work, does take effort. That is all true it isn't nearly as bad as you think it's going to be once you get to the point you want to be at. It does take years. Like I'll be very clear about that. (laughs) It takes years to get to that point, especially because you don't just want to like do it all at once. You really want to have like more of a structured implementation. But once you get to that place where it is rolled out, where you are comfortable and confident, you've made the tweaks that you need to make, you aren't spending all of your time Grading or writing or giving feedback on student work—that's just not the reality.
0: <laughs> Stop scaring people, Caitlin. It takes <laughs> years. <laughs> no, but you're just being you're honest, true. Tom. <laughs> no, no, I appreciate that, and I think I think you know that's a really good point, Caitlin, because I think what's missing sometimes from this dialogue in a lot of schools is an honest conversation. It, it, there is work, um, but it's a trade-off. It's it's doing different work. It's not. Everybody's busy. I don't know a teacher working who's not busy. So the question is, what are you doing with your minutes? I think in your response, you brought up two really important points. One is this, this contradiction or dichotomy between our mission statements, which often refer to excellence for all, and then this perspective that says once they all reach excellence, we think there's a problem that we we think we've dumbed it down, or we don't celebrate that. We have it's in the ethos of school. This traditional mindset that if there's too many A's uh, and we, we still, for some of us, still seek that bell curve distribution of, of scores. And and your other point about feedback, oh, I'm, I'm only going to be spending my time giving feedback to students. Yeah, that's kind of an important part of the job. Like That's one of the most important things we do. That's probably where you are going to spend the majority of your time because that is what we know that feedback has almost unanimous support in the academic literature about improving student achievement. So yeah, that's where you are going to spend your time. And therefore, we need to stop doing other things uh, to make room for that, which is so essential uh, to help our students improve. Elaine, misunderstandings from your perspective that to, to add to the conversation?
3: Yeah, you know, you've all actually hit those misunderstandings and you know, when I when I think about it, I know, Megan, you were talking about how, um, you know, students and, and their understanding of feedback, and um, I really do think that part of it is change is hard. And so when you're changing practices, and we've talked about this previously about um, it being traditional grading and making those changes, change in general is hard. And sometimes we have to mourn the practices that we had before, before we can move forward or almost to a point of becoming somewhat defensive because the practices that we're speaking of um, have some level of inequity and having to reflect and come to terms with the the practices that you were doing before. And I can say from when I was a classroom teacher, some of the, the misunderstandings that I may have had moving forward were like, wow, why did I do that? Why were, was I taking points off? Why was everything so um, focused on grubbing for points and not necessarily on the learning? And so I think change in general is hard. And then the communication. If you were communicating, and I know Megan had really clearly delineated the three different components in the standard based grading, and I would add the fourth with feedback, which I know Tom, you just talked about, and Megan or Caitlin, you talked about as well. I think communicating exactly what that means is extremely important. Mm-hmm. And then, lastly, with the misunderstandings, a lot of times it's important to do a non educational example, right? So that when you talk about it from the perspective of, you know, the pilot, you want your pilot to master, right, so that he's not, uh, you know, having any sort of accidents, or when you're going to the doctor, sometimes using those non-educational examples will help people kind of wrap their brain around the misunderstandings that we might have with the standard-based grading practices or philosophy behind the grading and assessing.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me of the, uh, the, the, the joke I often use in in workshops, and and a lot of people have used this one. It's not mine. I don't pretend to have invented it, but uh, it's one of the, the 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 question is: What do they call a lawyer that's taken the bar exam four times? A lawyer. A lawyer. Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. So uh, these misunderstandings are really critical, and I think it's important that as um, as we work toward changing the grading context, what I what I love about all of your answers is the honesty. And I think, as I said earlier, what's missing sometimes, especially on social media is an honest conversation about what's possible, what's doable and what we're trying to accomplish. It is somewhat interesting that in 2021, when you're the one advocating that grades only be based on the quality of evidence that students produce that that's the controversial position that that's the position that gets put on the defensive and and somehow it seems a little backwards uh, to me when there are there are folks in our industry of course been teaching for 20 years who do not know this career without the existence of standards and yet basing grades on the achievement of those very same standards is somewhat controversial okay Caitlin, we're gonna to shift to some positive and more optimistic topics now for the rest of our conference. But it's important, again, the honest conversation, and we need the same kind of honesty for the next question, which is, I wanna to shift to kind of the positive or the optimistic parts. Of standards-based grading, when when you began to shift your assessment and grading culture in your classroom, and of course we heard that it took years to No, I'm just I'm just teasing you. Uh, when we when we when you began to shift, uh, all kidding aside, you began to shift the grading culture in your classroom. What were some of the immediate sort of or short-term differences that you noticed both in yourself but also in your students? What were some of the differences that you noticed with your with your students and yourself?
2: So I want to start by talking about my students because I feel like the difference that I saw in them was not quick necessarily, but it was so striking in that number one, they stopped asking me my least favorite question. How many points is this worth? Um, Which was phenomenal. Uh, Didn't get that question anymore. And it really kind of, and I I say that as a joke, but I also say that because it kind of just delineates or, or signifies how well that shift was taking place culturally. Because instead of doing a task and activity and assignment because they were going to get points for it, they were seeing a different value in why they were doing something. It wasn't because we were getting points, it was because we're practicing or we're getting feedback. And we're going to use that feedback and that opportunity to practice to then grow and improve as we go forward. So there was definitely a shift in that way that they viewed the work that they were doing. But on top of that, and the biggest thing that I saw with my students, especially my gifted class, which was the class that held fast to grading and was very mad about the fact that we were getting rid of it. I actually saw the biggest change in them, Uh, and they were a lot more willing to take risks. They were a lot more willing to try something new, something different even if it was a way that they were going to show me what they had learned or what they had gathered, instead of every single student picking the path of least resistance, the, the slideshow that they could put together really quickly and really easily to get all the points that they needed to get my students would take risks and truly try something that might have been a little far outside their comfort zone. They were a lot more willing to kind of put themselves out there when it came to their learning experiences and their learning journey and and not be good at something at first. And that's not something that felt very comfortable for students. And I can understand that in the traditional sense or in the traditional classroom, because if you're not good at something right away. You're going to lose points on that something, and that's going to impact you in the long run on your final grade or what have you. There's really no incentive for not for trying something new and being bad at it at
0: first. Mm -hmm. So, really interesting that you say that that the idea that it encourages risk taking because you can grow past those initial stumbles. It doesn't cost you in perpetuity. I love that. That's that's an interesting interesting. residual effect on that. Any other sort of positive, optimistic responses that you notice from your students or yourself?
2: So um, I will say, too, I can't take credit for that. A kid actually said that to me. So Mm -hmm. it was actually one of my 11 year olds that told me that. And I was like, oh, I love that. Okay. (laughs) Um, But then in myself, I would say that as a teacher, like you, you know, your students are growing, you know that your students are making progress on the skills mm-hmm. that you've got, them, that you're teaching them and that you're working on in your classrooms and in your content area. But mm-hmm. when you make this shift, you start to actually see it happen in real time. Mm-hmm. You can see a kid go from beginning at a skill to developing, to progressing, not just in your grade book, but on the work that they're doing, because that's how you your class is structured. That's how your feedback is structured. Right.
3: You know, I love, Caitlin, that you started with how your students are feeling in, the, in, in this world with uh, your learning environment. When I walk through classrooms, since I'm not in the classroom, I'm at the district office, what I can, um, one of the first things that I noticed was exactly how the students were behaving in the classroom. And you also talked about taking risks. And I loved seeing um, students, especially in a math classroom and I know that math unfortunately has that stigma of I'm either a non math student or a math student i'm either good or i'm bad and hearing students, what I would call like language of learning. um, Talking to each other around wow I really struggled with uh, graphing an equation, but I know that I can go back and reassess and hearing them talk about that productive struggle and being almost eager for the reassessment and talking openly about their mistakes because they knew they could. It didn't have this like end all, oh my gosh, I'm doomed. I, I'm not gonna be able to go to the dance or I'm not gonna be able to you know do anything because I'm gonna be you know uh, ineligible or my mom's gonna be upset. They all talked about their learning and it was a completely different shift than I had seen before. And then ultimately what I saw students also doing was reflecting. So they saw their learning as a process and they also saw where they were in relation to the standard. Um, Some of the students that I saw and I walked through classroom actually had um, like a tracking of their progress on targets and specific standards and would speak to me as I would ask like, oh, what does this mean? What does this look like? Oh, I'm going to go back and reassess on this one. I'm really strong in this area, um, but I need to. Uh, do some more practice here, and I'd never heard students talk in that language of learning in a classroom before. It was always about points, and many times it was like, oh, I see the 80 percent, perfect, just kind of throw it in the backpack. Where students were actually eager to talk about learning, and especially in a high school classroom, that was an extreme shift than anything that I had seen before, Um, and I really appreciated hearing it from the students, because I talk with teachers all the time around what you've talked about, Caitlin and Megan, I know you talked about it as well Is the reassessing and the years that it takes to put things together. But seeing the, the students actually talk in the classroom, very authentic. It wasn't an interview. It wasn't a survey. It was just me observing students talking in the classroom. Huge difference. It, it was It was amazing.
1: And Caitlin and Elaine I think you guys I 100% agree with everything that you've said so far about. Uh, how things just become so much more positive in your classroom and, and and what I would say, if I were to sum it all up in one word, I would say it's dialogue. Uh, the probably the biggest shift that I noticed and it's been it was about 10 years ago that I started making these shifts in my own classroom when I was in the classroom. But I would say over time, the biggest, most positive change that I saw was just in the dialogue. And it's everything that you two just said. It's the way that I would talk to students, the way students would talk to me, the way that they would talk to each other, to their um, caregivers, to the way I would talk to other teachers. Just the dialogue completely changed from being about points to being about learning and that's really exciting when you start to see that shift and and everything becomes about the learning and some of the biggest areas where i noticed that was in the feedback like we've talked about before the feedback that i was giving to my students became richer and more meaningful and the feedback that i could give say at parent teacher conferences Um, We would encourage our students to come to conferences, but whether they were there or not, the conversation always started with strengths and areas of improvement. We didn't even talk about grades at conferences unless the parents would ask. But I would have the students say, what are you doing well? And what's something you still need to improve? And because of all the feedback and because of the clear communication, they could answer those questions and we could have a really meaningful conversation about how the student was doing in class with the content and with their work habits. And another area where I saw that come through would be um, just in my dialogue with other teachers. So if another teacher, say a reading specialist, a special education teacher, the teacher at the next level needed to know something about a student, I could very quickly and easily tell them how that student was doing and where their areas for growth were and there was an incident one time where the um, high school principal gave me a call i was teaching eighth grade english at the time and there was a student who was just right on the cusp of you know maybe being in honors english as a high schooler maybe not and they were trying to kind of figure out with with the parents and with the student you know what would be the best placement and within a matter of minutes i could just go to my grade book and say okay well the student you know has these standards are proficient these they're already beyond proficient here's what it means. And then they could take that information to that conversation and have a very helpful conversation about, you know, where that student should be the next year. Uh, one other thing that I, I think was really positive is that standards-based grading for me was just liberating. I wasn't coming at grading from a gotcha mentality. It was more mm. of a meet mentality. Like,
2: mm.
1: it, instead of me looking for ways to dock your grade because you did this, that, or the other thing and that'll learn you, uh, I was more, what's our reality? Where are we now? What do I know about your current reality, your current level of learning and how can I help you improve? And that is true for students who are already getting the standards. That's true for students who are far from getting the standards. No matter where you were, we could look at where are you and how do we get you to the next level? And that reminds me of something that Caitlin said you were talking about um you know your your students who were talented and gifted and how you saw them taking more risks and I would say that I saw huge shifts in um, students with exceptionalities at both ends of the spectrum so students um, who were more gifted were starting to take those risks and um, be more confident and then also students who had typically struggled in school were starting to gain confidence and see that you know I'm I'm going to get this, and my teacher believes that I can get it, and they're not out to get me; they're here to help me. And we're going to use these grades as an avenue to help me get better, and not as a way to just keep telling me why I'm not getting it. So,
0: yeah, yeah that is
1: dialogue uh, and confidence.
0: That is such a uh, I think such an underestimated and undervalued impact. Uh, sometimes we look at assessment and grading as just a clinical exercise in number crunching, and we forget. That there is an emotional side to assessment, an emotional side to grading, and the impact it has on relationships. I've often said to folks, assessment is relationship building. This is a deeply personal experience for students. And the idea that through traditional grading, this relationship can be quite contentious and not even intentionally. It just sort of evolves that way. Whereas when you're starting to focus on the learning, it's kind of us against the standards, us against the learning, us against your you know your continuum and, and, and not you against me and me hunting down trying to gotcha or dock you um that how that changes i think is one of the most underestimated parts of of shifting that that culture of grading in in our schools um elaine i want to come back to you because i want to shift the conversation to leadership and focus maybe a little bit on principals or even at a district level um and what principals or district leaders can do to support the early adopters, because we know in most situations, this is not going to happen all at once. We're not going to have everybody. And I think schools make a mistake in trying to prepare. If there's one thing that educators are really good at, it's preparing to prepare to be prepared so that we're prepared to be prepared to implement, right? So we spent a lot of time doing all of that. So before a before school gets to a kind of critical mass where you've got momentum and you've got, say, 80% of your staff that's ready to roll and ready to go on, and you've got some early adopters, and there will, of course during the time of those early adopters, there's going to be some inconsistency amongst teachers because you'll kind of have people on both sides of the ledger. You'll have people who are not quite sure. You have people kind of in the middle dabbling with it. You've got your early adopters who are moving forward. So how do leaders navigate all of that? How do principals or let's talk district staff, whichever perspective you wanna take, or maybe even both, how do leaders navigate that, that situation where you've got people kind of at all parts along that continuum?
3: Yeah, you know, that's actually a fantastic question, and that's the one I think gets um, asked often when people hear, oh, your school or district has been moving to standard-based grading or some level of that. And really, the, the first response I think of is, it's messy, and you have to be okay with that. And a lot of times I just say, you need to lean in and embrace those teachers that are willing to take a chance, that are willing to do the work, and just know that it's not going to be perfect. And that shouldn't stop you from moving forward if you know what your sound practices are and you know um, exactly like megan had talked about at the beginning exactly what those tenets or those big ideas that you have for your grading practices are you need to clearly communicate that so that the administrator or the administrative team or the district team can help support in case there are any sort of stakeholders, family, students that have questions. So the big piece for me from a leadership perspective is lean in and embrace those early adopters. Make sure you give them space and time to collaborate, to talk, to make mistakes. Very much like we were just talking about students making mistakes and offering them an opportunity to take risks. It's the exact same process. You really want to offer your teachers an opportunity to go, okay, that process didn't go so well. I need to probably change my reassessment procedures because I'm noticing it's the same thing you would do if a student wasn't doing well in math you would ask them to go back and reassess. So I think we have to actually embrace what we're talking or talking about our teachers to do with our students, administrative staff needs to also do with our teachers. Yeah. And then, of course, offering that time and space that I've talked about is really encouraging the collaboration. I need a thought partner. And so going out into the Twitter world or Facebook or anywhere online, especially since the pandemic has been so helpful for my growth. And so even if you do not have a teacher on your site, say you're the only teacher on your site that Mm -hmm. really is interested in doing this work and you have your administrative team that's like, yes, I will support you with this. Look for a thought partner or somebody else, even if it's on Twitter or outside of um, your school community, because being able to brainstorm, and i, I like I'm learning and evolving every single time I get back onto a, you know, a standard-based grading Twitter chat or Mm -hmm. going onto one of the Facebook Live. I'm constantly learning and evolving. And so having that administrative staff that is encouraging that evolving, that, you know, involvement in evolving or professional development opportunities, time, space, um, I say lean in, embrace and hold on tight because those early adopters can really start to build some capacity. Of that.
2: Elaine, I love everything you said because I kind of look at this from the perspective of someone who would do the early adopting. So one of the people who would be in the classroom, like, yeah, I definitely wanna try that out, take that on. So as you said, like the time and space is huge and inviting those conversations, like I, I will say, one of the opportunities that I had to do a lot of this work, I had a really supportive administrator whose office door was always open, who invited those conversations in a way that wasn't intimidating or, or scary for someone who was trying something new in their professional field, where obviously like my livelihood was tied to having that job. Yeah. So having someone invite that conversation, invite me into doing that, like how is it going? what do you need from me was such a powerful question to hear because it really allowed me to be like, okay, what do I need from leadership right now? So inviting that in a way that's, that's approachable and that you truly like, follow-through then is so huge. Um, And then one of the other things you mentioned, and you've said a few times, is about going into classrooms. So that is one of those things that I I love. I love when administrators do, especially when you're trying something new, because it's this idea that they're going to come see it in real time in action. They're going to see what it looks like, and they're going to be able to bear witness to some of those conversations and the changes that are happening and the positives that are coming from it. And the idea that like that's not an opportunity for you to come in and like find everything that's wrong, but an opportunity for you to come in and truly be like a partner with me and getting this to to work. And then sharing what you've seen with other people, especially maybe those people who aren't quite on board yet, but, but giving them that, that idea like, okay, this is cool. Uh, You should, you should hear what I just saw. And that's a really cool way to show support for your early adopters because you're like okay i'm doing something right because they're talking to other teachers about me Mm -hmm. and like that's a really confidence boosting experience to have um and then finally just support with families so one of the things that i hear from a lot of the teachers that i talk with who want to try this out and be like the trailblazer in their district is okay so what am i gonna do about families like they're gonna push back there's gonna be negativity and Again, my experience with this, obviously, like you do have to do a lot of communication as the classroom teacher who's doing this. Like, that is not something that I'm trying to pass the buck on or say that you should pass the buck on because it totally is your responsibility to communicate what's going on, why it's happening, how to interpret it with families. But support from your administrators and your district leaders is so vital in those conversations. It was literally a three minute video that my principal and I recorded together and sent to families. And he really didn't say much in the video, but it was awesome that he was just there showing like, I'm on board with this, I'm behind this, like this teacher's doing something and I obviously like know about it and support it. Like, and that's maybe not feasible for for everybody, but the idea that if, if a family is upset or if someone reaches out to you about this change that's occurring, Instead of immediately being like, okay, well, I'll talk to that teacher. Invite the conversation and invite the teacher to be a part of it. Because that's huge. Like, I want to talk to families about what I'm doing. I want to Mm -hmm. clarify it for them and help them understand. So if you invite me into that conversation, like, I want to be there. I want to be a part of it. So that's hugely helpful.
0: Yeah, that level of sponsorship, even... Even if it's just tangential, just the idea that he was there and he was in the video, I do think it's important um, for administrators to to have at least a foundational knowledge so that when parents are asking questions, I mean, we're always coming from a position of strength because standards-based grading is really using sound assessment practices and sound assessment principles that are research validated. So it's not hard to defend it. Uh, what's actually hard to defend are some of the traditional practices that don't have any research behind them. Um, but, but having, you know, it's like, there is no research that supports these practices. It's just what we're used to. And I think you're, you know, it's a fair comment, Caitlin, that usually change is met with uh, resistance from parents and it's, you know, look, parents are not educators, most of them. And and they think that how they went to school is, is what should happen to their children. And they're coming at it, most of them, from the perspective of, uh, you know, it's from a positive perspective, meaning that, you know, how is this different? Why, how does this affect my child? They're just trying to advocate for their children and having the principal, being that person that gives that level of sponsorship is, is really, really important. I think and he brought up a really great point there. Megan, thoughts on the role of leadership, either from a teacher perspective or from a leadership perspective.
1: Yeah, I think I would really just echo what Elaine and Caitlin and you were saying about, you know, first as a as a leader, whether that's in the building or at the district level, just learning as much as you can about it, getting into the classrooms, go see it in action, talk to the teachers, talk to the students, um, learn about what it looks like in action, and then that communication piece that you guys mentioned, um, I think it's helpful You know, Caitlin, you and your principal got on the same page, and I think that's really helpful for any early adopters and any leaders to kind of be on the same page with maybe an elevator pitch, per se, of what is it when people will ask, and they will, whether it's teachers or um, people in the community or the school board, people are going to start to ask about, you know, what's going on in so-and-so's classroom have a common answer for how you're going to say you know this is this is why they're doing that this is what they're doing it and to be able to be on the same page with how you communicate that so that there aren't more misunderstandings in the community and then i think just making sure that you um really find that common ground of you know we're, we're all we're all in this together we're all um working toward the same end and i think another thing that's important is to reassure people especially if people um are a little bit hesitant or concerned about some of these changes that are happening one thing that i think helps parents especially is to to reassure them that this isn't willy-nilly we're not just haphazardly just trying something new just on a whim you know this is this is based on research So this is this is very research-based and intentional these are intentional changes and to that end, it's also not set in stone. So it doesn't mean that we can't be flexible and improve it as we go. So I think kind of reassuring people that mm-hmm. this is not haphazard, this is intentional, but it's also flexible can really go a long way.
0: You know, it's, it, you, you bringing up that communication piece and, and the fact that this is research validated reminds me so much of all of the, in, in many of the places I go with schools and districts, I wouldn't say it happens frequently, but it does happen enough is there's parent meetings and parents have a chance to ask questions or they have a chance to hear a, a small presentation from myself and then talking about where the school is going and I know that one of the number one things that that accomplishes is letting parents know that their school hasn't lost their collective minds that that they they haven't they haven't gone rogue you know that they understand that some somehow an outside voice saying hey I just came from this place and now I'm, at the end of the week I'm working with this school in this state or this province or this city, it starts to help parents understand that this isn't just a school that's decided to kind of, Go off the grid, if you will, or just kind of go off on a tangent. This is a school that is actually following a lot of the, uh, and that that of course is more prominent now because this is not a new idea. As we talked about at the at the outset of the, of the episode, we we know that this idea is not new, and and so sometimes just that ability to see the bigger picture helps parents realize that this isn't just one teacher in one school. That's decided to do something different. This is actually part of a much bigger dialogue. Megan, I want to stick with you because I want to sort of close out with um, a a couple of specific topics, And, and some of them have come up already. And I think I want to dig a little bit deeper. I want to talk specifically, Megan, about reassessment. And while there are some who object, and we talked about the joke about the lawyer, there are some who object uh, to the notion that the, you know there's no second chances in life and we know that's a, a false assertion. Um, the vast majority of teachers I work with are hesitant about reassessment because of the time factor. They know that some students need longer to learn, um, They're but but they're wondering, where am I gonna find the time? And they're not asking that question cynically. There's like, oh, where am I gonna find the time? They're, they're literally asking like, where am I going to find the time to reassess my students? So how can teachers from your perspective balance the need for continual assessment with their students because we know we're trying to get them to proficiency or even mastery of the standards how do we do that with while avoiding kind of burning out from that constant assessment cycle that can get away on you if you're not mindful of how it unfolds in your classroom
1: tom i love this question because it is it's such a real and legitimate concern from teachers and like Caitlin said, it does take more time, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it when you're very first starting out with standards based grading and with reassessment specifically, it does take a little bit more time to establish your system and to, to really get in the groove. it takes students more time to kind of figure out the system and realize that um, kind of get in get in their workflow with some of those those study habits and and how the reassessment wheel works. And so I think that first of all, reassuring teachers that, yes, it's a little bit more time up front, but teachers who have done it, and I've seen this over and over again in my own practice with teachers I've worked with um, within my district, outside my district, in my own research that teachers will tell you that that upfront time will fade eventually. And yes, you're going to consistently be giving feedback and, and working with students in that in that area, but the upfront work does diminish over time. and teachers will tell you over and over and over again that the time that they do spend on it is worth it. Uh, So with that said, uh, there are several practical things that you can do to try to navigate that and try to make sure that it doesn't take as much time. Uh, One of those is starting with essential standards. And I think that if you can just start by focusing on your essential standards, that will help you by not being overwhelmed. We don't have to assess and reteach and reassess every single thing that we do in the classroom. Just start by focusing on those critical essential standards because those are the hills that we want to die on. Those are the things that we are guaranteeing when you leave my classroom, I'm going to guarantee that we have worked really, really hard to make sure that you understand these things. So start with essential standards. And I would also say set deadlines. Um, this this isn't willy-nilly this isn't endless do-overs this is this is love with boundaries this is we live in a system of deadlines it's okay to have deadlines yeah. and for me when i was in the classroom uh the deadline for me was one week before grades were due we reported grades formally every quarter so my students knew it was communicated early and often that one week before the quarter ends that's that's it, that's when my grade book closes, so to speak. That's when you know we're done with reassessment, we're done with revisions, we're done with turning things and that's my hard and fast deadline because we have to keep our sanity as teachers. We can't be up until one in the morning the day before grades are due because all of a sudden we got flooded with students asking us, what can I do to get my grade up? We need to communicate that constantly with them and, and just make that part of our system that we're, we're always kind of working on learning and, and we want you to learn and we want to make sure that you do learn. But at the end of the day, we live in a system where the school year ends, you move on to the next year and we have to at some point report a grade. And so mm-hmm. um, so be OK with setting deadlines, I would say would be another thing. Um, Another big thing I think for saving time is to really put that onus on the students and I think at the secondary level especially you can do this is that have the students take responsibility for their reassessment. Now, is that true of every student? No. There are a few students who you're you're just going to have to hunt down and, and kind of bring along the way. But those are few and far between and 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 that's our that's our job. You know, that's okay that we have to go find a few students and and kind of encourage them. But for the most part, you know, put that responsibility on the students. One thing that I have found works very very well is having some type of reassessment, uh, reflection, reassessment request of sorts where the students have to have a very specific plan they have to go in look at exactly how they did look at the feedback look at the rubric or the criteria or whatever it is they need to go back in and reflect on and say this is where i need to grow here's my very specific plan for how i'm going to relearn this and here's the evidence that i'm going to give you to show you that i've learned it and then on the flip side when students do make revisions or do a reassessment. I think it it really helps when we have students do a reflection. And that was something that really made a huge difference for me um, as an English teacher. You know, writing was a big one and nothing frustrated me more than sitting down with, you know, 20 essays to, to that have been revised. And, you know, I look through and they maybe changed a couple commas and it was a waste of their time. It was a waste of my time. Why did we just do that? And so what I started doing was having students go in and and this is specific to papers, but it would work on quizzes, tests, projects. It, It would be universal. Have them go in and highlight star, point out, this is what I changed. This is the evidence that I'm giving you to show you that I've learned it. And then it forces them to make sure that they've actually learned and they've reflected on that learning. And then it saves me time because now I'm, I'm going to look at the whole thing, but I'm going to zero in on, okay, this is where they're telling me they've grown. And then I'm going to read their reflection and they have to tell me, you know, this is the evidence I've given you of where I've, I've grown. And this is why I think that this evidence will move me into the next grading category, mm-hmm. because then that forces the kids to go back. They have to look at the rubric. They have to look at your feedback and really internalize, okay, what about what I just did actually helped me improve my learning? Right. And so by doing that, not only are you saving yourself time, but then it kind of helps too. This is where the students start to learn that, you know, this is this is a lot of work and and it's good and it's meaningful work, but I want to make sure that I'm putting forth my best effort because I want to make sure that I'm if I'm grade grubbing or if I'm pure, whatever my motives are, it still ensures that the students are doing the learning. Right. And then one, just one more piece of advice I would give was that reassessment doesn't have to be this big hairy monster. It doesn't have to be this scary event. I can't tell you how many times on a reassessment, maybe a quiz or a reflection where I would just call a student to my desk and say, Hey, tell me about this and maybe ask a follow-up question and they would be able to tell me and I would say yep you got it and I would just go in and immediately on the spot go to my electronic grade book change the grade add a note done deal it doesn't have to be this big scary thing sometimes
0: right that's a really good point Megan because I think um, you know and uh, something uh, my friend and colleague Leanne Young often says is formality is not akin to validity just because an assessment is less formal doesn't make it less valid. And I think that's a really important point that there are a lot of different ways to, to assess and get valid evidence of learning, despite the fact that it might not be in the form of a stapled uh, packet of paper. Elaine, how do we? how else might we avoid? Anything to add in terms of avoiding the burnout that teachers, I think, often anticipate that doesn't often manifest? It, it can at times for sure, but any thoughts on how we avoid burnout?
3: Yeah, you know, and Megan, you touched on this as well, the identifying of the essential standards. That's your hill to die on. That's what you are assessing and reassessing and you want students to be able to master. I should be able to know know by the end of semester one, these are all the concepts, standards, Targets. I know everybody uses different language. This is what you need to know by the end of semester one. This is what I need to know by the end of semester two. And those are the opportunities that I should be reassessing on. And the real quick answer is don't reassess everything. That's the quick answer. And when I was explaining that to teachers as we started going on this journey, they were like, oh, okay, I have permission. Because if I open up and say, you have multiple opportunities to demonstrate your learning, that makes me feel as though every single piece of paper I give them." Them means a reassessment. And I said, no, you are establishing what are the important factors. And then make, and also uh, discussed making sure that it's not necessarily an event. I think we see reassessment. And the word assessment makes it sound like it's this large unit test or this big production when in fact it's evidence of learning so to me it's new evidence of learning that you can now demonstrate and it may not be the written paper it may be a video it may be a powerpoint it may be a discussion with me it may be as simple as an exit ticket because i've worked with you through something so it's really when i think of reassessment it's new evidence of learning that you've been able to demonstrate and show me and you are the teacher of record you are the the teacher in the classroom You are the professional that knows your students. So don't let the grade book decide what that's going to look like. Your reassessment opportunities are the procedures and the process you've put together. And so the big, the short answer to that big, long spiel is don't reassess everything. And yes, that is okay.
2: (laughs) Uh, Elaine, I love that. And I have like just two quick and dirty tips. Number one, get creative if you want to build it into your schedule. I see this on the internet all the time, and to be quite honest with you, it's one of my favorite things in my classroom to do. Catch-up days, Starbucks days, whatever you want to call them. If you've got a day and you're like, "Mm, I need a filler activity, don't use a filler activity, and use it as a day for students to go back and do some reassessing on any skills, standards, whatever it might be, that they need extra work on. You can also then use that time to reteach skills, standards, etc. You notice that multiple students aren't Quite there yet, or that they ask for? Because uh, if you created that culture, kids will probably ask you, like, "Hey, I don't know this. Can you help me?" Yeah. Um, so get creative. Build it into your schedule. That's that's like one of my biggest tips. Because um, right. I know most teachers have those days uh, where you're like, "Okay, I need something to do today." Got it done. Here you go. <laughs> um, that's right. And then. The last tip I have is just to make sure your feedback structure is really consistent and easy to use. This will help make sure that you're not super bogged down with that, that you're not overwhelmed with reassessment because you give feedback in the same way in the same structure every time. Um, Personally, I use a where are you right now? Why are you there? What are you going to do next? Or what are your next steps? It's really simple, really consistent. The kids get used to looking at it that way which is a positive, but then it also can cut down on my time spent giving that feedback and giving that uh, time for reassessment and continuously going through that process.
1: Right.
0: One one thing I would add as well is for teachers to take advantage of where reassessment is already occurring. I think sometimes our fixation on the name of the event or the task type has us miss the opportunities for reassessment that are built right into our learning progression so a very simple example i often use is that you could be teaching adding and subtracting fractions and you have an assignment that maybe you score and grade and then three days later there's an adding of subtracting fractions quiz and then section a and b of your fractions test are about adding and subtracting fractions well from a traditional viewpoint you're going to see that as three separate events asking the question do i need to make that six if i'm reassessing Or do you see that as one assessment and two reassessments built right into your learning progression? So it's there for the taking. And I think one of the the ways that that relationship gets fractured is because we teach the standards and yet we continually organize our grade books by the name of the event or the task type, tests, quizzes, assignments, projects, labs. Our standards have never been organized that way. And I think that showing teachers looking where you're already doing it is a really great way to get started with reassessment. And it takes zero minutes of your free time. Because as you said, if it's built, Caitlin, built into your instructional progression, it's it's far less daunting at first and then you get used to that idea. So Caitlin, I wanna stick with you and I wanna come back to another issue, which I think is probably the biggest issue that is maybe the most controversial issue. And that is of course, uh, student accountability for me. Uh, this is the number one issue for sure for middle schools and high schools um, that that teachers and schools need to address. Uh, you know the the use of zeros, the use of penalties, docking students, as we talked about earlier, has been a uh, traditional practice. And uh, and and many teachers will proclaim that if I don't lower their score, if I don't threaten the lower of their score, uh, it's going to be anarchy. I'm gonna I'm gonna kids turning things in whenever they feel like it. Um, and of course, then the students in the short term will submit their assignments, you know, out of fear um, simply because they they don't want to be docked. But um, the the teachers fear that if if I don't threaten them with that score, they're not learning a valuable life lesson. So w- from your perspective, as we separate uh, behavior from achievement, how do we hold students accountable without distorting their achievement levels?
2: Yeah, I love this question because I totally agree with you, Tom. It's one of those things that that truly does become like the headliner when we're talking about making these changes. And you kind of hit you kind of started off with what I want to say is first, we need to teach accountability like behavior. We need to make sure that our students understand what it means to be held accountable and what it means to be accountable. But I would argue that I don't want them being accountable for their grade. I want them accountable for their learning. And I want them to truly own that process because it is theirs. Mm -hmm. And you can do that in so many different ways. One could be shifting that focus uh, from you to them and who is responsible for doing the learning and who is responsible for completing the activities. When you shift away from grading, you really do make that change happen almost organically. And then I want to echo something that Megan said earlier, and that is about deadlines. I think that there is this distortion that standards-based grading and allowing for reassessment means that there's no deadlines ever, and that everything can just be done whenever it works and whenever they want and all of this stuff. And I would contend that deadlines are not bad. Deadlines are kind of a fact of life. And now, when that deadline occurs is what matters here. So deadlines shouldn't just be decided on randomly. Like you're not just going to say like, okay, we're going to have a test next Tuesday when you're just kind of pulling that out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a deadline. Ensure that it's set purposefully. Ensure that you've put it into place because it's it's there for a reason. And that you've communicated not just when it is, but why it is to your students. And that's huge in increasing their accountability because They're going to hold themselves more accountable when they understand not just what is happening, but why it's happening. So that's the biggest thing here. And I I usually challenge people when I hear about accountability uh, in, in just two really simple ways. It's not being responsible isn't just like making sure you get everything done on time all the time. Being responsible can also mean asking for help or asking for an extension. That's hugely responsible behavior. That's also really big accountability behavior because you're holding yourself accountable for making sure you do it and do it well. So if you need to ask for that, that's what I want. That's accountability right there through and through. Mm -hmm. And then as I kind of alluded to before, when you're making this shift in your classroom and your students truly are taking ownership of their learning, that's accountability. If that's not what we would consider accountability, I don't know how to define the word anymore because they are being held accountable in that structure 100%. Right.
1: Yeah, Caitlin, I like what you said. Uh, I I really think that this whole concept of, of responsibility and accountability kind of goes back to what I said earlier about viewing grades as compensation instead of communication. And 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 what we know and what we're used to is being able to use grades as a motivator and use grades to shape behavior. But once we start to kind of make that, that mindset shift and see grades as communication, now we need to find a new way to get students to improve those work habits. You know, grades don't teach students how to have good work habits. Teachers do. And the adults in their lives do. And so... It can be really challenging at first, but we just we have to get a little bit creative, as you said before, and find new ways to get them to foster those work habits. Um, students don't come to kindergarten asking how many points is this worth. It's something that we have kind of ingrained in the culture over time, and it takes a lot of work. But we need to just kind of start shifting that culture. And and you guys have mentioned it before about how you know the dialogue shift and the culture shifts, and and things just kind of start to to change with people's mentality and their approach to assessment and grading and learning. And I think that we just need to remember uh, that we need to be the ones who make those explicit connections for the students. We need to be the ones who are finding new ways to teach students those work habits. Um, One example I wanna give was Elaine, you mentioned when you go into classrooms and you see the students um, with kind of a chart tracking their standards. That's something that I started doing in my classroom um several years ago and uh, i would if i went back to the classroom i would definitely continue to do it where they would stop and reflect we would actually take class time for them to look at their academic grade and their um, non-academic grade behavior grade work habits grade and and that's the time where you can make those really explicit connections for students about these are the work habits we're exhibiting these are our academic grades here's how they're connected and one thing that I would do with students is have them go in and, and look at all the feedback. We're spending lots of time on feedback and then we get frustrated with students don't look at it. But if it's that important, I think that it's worth taking class time to have them look at it. If, if our feedback to them is, is that important and it is, then let's make that part of our instruction because the feedback is instruction. So um, yes, it would take class time about every two weeks to go in and really look at those things. But what I would have my students do is reflect. They would have to paraphrase my feedback to them and say these are my strengths. These are the areas that I need to work on. Here's my plan for working on this. And that I think is where you find value in getting students to see, okay, this is this is how I'm doing academically, this is how I'm doing with my work habits. And without fail, students would suddenly all these hands were flying up, you know, can I revise this. Can I come in and learn more about this? Because now they're seeing they're just they're doing it on their own and they're seeing that they're not there yet. And we weren't even having to write down grades. We were just writing down feedback. And that feedback alone was enough to motivate them to want to do better. So.
0: Your uh, your comment, Megan, about uh, about kindergarten students, I I'm envisioning a kindergarten child halfway to the painting corner, turning to their teacher and saying, are you grading this? Uh, Because, because, because if you're not grading it, I'm not painting. Uh, That just happens zero times. And, and so they get in, You know, it's the adults who introduce this concept. Kindergarten children don't know what grades are until some adult, unless they have an older sibling, some adult introduces the concept to them. And then years later, we blame them for being grade grubbers, but we're the ones that have indoctrinated them into that system. Elaine, thoughts on accountability. How do we hold students accountable without distorting their achievement levels?
3: Well, it's so funny that you tagged on that, Tom, because that's what I was going to say as well, Megan, <laughs> that, you know, you look at that at kindergarten, I think about it at high school level. We assume that the 14-year-olds that we are inheriting have all of these work habits and middle schools have done all the work, elementary school has done all the work, um, and so they come in and they know exactly how to behave and exactly the expectations they should know at a high school level, when in fact... that assumption is what causes us so much harm. And so separating academic from non-academic in your gradebook, in your thinking, in your learning, in your classroom is the most important piece of that accountability. And I use my own son as an example. He's 11 years old and I use him as an example all the time. And it's my conversations with him and his lack of work habits that we struggle with um, that I constantly think about with this language of learning all year in fourth grade, he's a fifth grader going into sixth grade, but all year in fourth grade, it was forgetting his sweatshirt at school, forgetting the backpack, being very unorganized, but he was brilliant academically, great in math, great in English, the whole, the whole bit. And so I kept talking to him about his work habits and giving him feedback, very specific, timely, and accurate feedback on the work habits, which <laughs> you know, I know may not seem very uh, school-based, but it was around organization, being on task. Turning in homework, doing your homework, but then not turning it in and then not getting the the points or whatever. We were trying to get that organization in. And so we talked and I gave him constant feedback on his work habits and his teacher ultimately at the end was like, wow, he's done such a great job. And I wanted to say it's because I've been giving him work habit feedback since the, the beginning of school in order to get there. We can't just assume that in a hodgepodge grade book, when we're putting it all in and mixing it all in, that the student is magically going to know which part is academic and which part is not academic, as well as our families. So when our families have a hard time with that work habit grade being separate, or the teachers have a hard time separating the academic and non-academic, I tell them it's because of the accountability. We want Mm -hmm. to teach the responsibility, and we can't teach that if it's mixed in in a hodgepodge grade book. And so I use my son as an example constantly, and he's doing much better. He's doing much better with his work, I will say.
0: That's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that the success (laughs) is happening, that's for sure. So clearly the lessons are being learned. You know, it's interesting because the – the question that i have yet to get an answer when when people resist this notion the 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 question i ask them that i cannot get an answer from people is why they can hold students accountable for disrespectful behavior and never touch the grade book and do an effective job of holding students accountable for that disrespectful behavior but as soon as the behavioral misstep becomes responsibility or irresponsibility why they suddenly think they need the grade book to hold kids accountable i still to this day cannot get a straight answer from anybody as to how they could square that circle so it's a, it is an interesting phenomenon i think it's just tradition i think it's something that that is has been a constant part, part of our work. Okay. So let's, let's finish up now and let's talk about advice and let's think about those folks who are listening, who may be in the very early stages of adopting some new sort of approach to grading or some other, you know, people who are maybe a little further along, but for those who are early on in this whole process and thinking about moving, what, what are some of the first steps that they can start to take along that journey. So let's start with Elaine. I'm going to get to all three of you on this question. Knowing what you know now, what advice uh, do you have for the individual classroom teacher who's ready to start their standards-based grading journey? What advice would you give them?
3: Wow. so I would say, you know, first of all, patience. Patience and knowing that things will be messy and it's okay to make some changes along the way. Um, I also think clarity. Clarity is really important that you're communicating with Um, other teachers around you um, and your administrative staff, as well as your families and your students. Having that clarity is so important, especially if it's something small. and That would be my next piece. If you are starting with just simple changes, maybe it is just I'm separating my academic from my non-academic pieces in the gradebook and in my classroom and in my learning environment and I'm going to make that crystal clear on what that looks like. So that your stakeholders, all your stakeholders, other colleagues, administrative staff, students, families all know that. I think if anything, clarity is the most important. And then also seek help. Make sure that you, if you do have questions, talk to others. And like I've said before, even if it isn't another administrator or colleague or teammate um, in your building or on your campus, there are tons of people out there in, uh, you know, uh, Twitter world and Facebook and such um, that do have um, other bits of advice. So don't do this in isolation as far as, um, asking and seeking help. Um, but I think that making sure that, you know, that you have a thought partner in this is super important and just the clarity. I think clarity is really important and don't lose hope because you are going to ebb and flow as you go through this and that's okay. It's part of the learning process.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Megan thoughts on advice for, uh, those who are new to this and beginning their journey.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, for classroom teachers specifically, really starting with your essential standards can go a long way. So that helps to focus your thinking. It focuses your work and it it focuses your classroom goals. And so starting with just those essential standards and knowing uh, what is going to be most important for students to learn and then go through even just one, ideally go through all of them, but even just start with one essential standard and have an honest reflection and conversation about what evidence do I need to collect and what will I accept as proficient for this standard. So ideally, if you have a professional learning community or an instructional coach or someone to have that conversation with, and if you can bring student work to the table to have that conversation even better, but really get crystal clear about what will it take for me to know whether a student is proficient on this skill. Because that's where I think we start to make that shift instead of approaching from, hey, we're going to take this unit one test. How many points should it be worth? Or we're going to do this project. How many points should it be worth? That's where we start making the shift to what evidence do I need and how will I know if a student is proficient on this skill? So I think really starting with that and then also just giving yourself grace to make mistakes and to make changes and celebrate small wins. You know, anytime you see something positive happen, um, celebrate that, write it down so you can look back at it on on a rough day, share it with others, communicate your successes with other people, and ultimately just, you know, take those small victories and, and celebrate those.
0: Yeah, love that. And finally, Caitlin, advice to those wanting to begin their journey. Besides the fact that it's going to take a long time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So that's like my first piece of advice is just to understand that. Um, And then Elaine kind of hit on the other piece that I want to highlight find your community and lean on them. They're not going to necessarily be people that are in your building, people that you see in person all the time, but just make sure that you have those people that you can lean on when you do want to celebrate those wins. Like Megan said, Mm -hmm. when you are having a hard time and need advice, whatever that might be, have those people that are there to help you with that. And then do some research on your own. Um, A lot of the times when we're classroom teachers, when we were put into this position where we're being asked to almost pilot this or try this out, we're provided a lot of information and we're given a lot of information that exists, which is phenomenal. And definitely take that time to, to dig into that. But I would also challenge you to do a little bit of your own research. One of the things that helped me the most in developing my philosophy and my foundation behind assessment and grading was actually reading case studies about assessment practices in other classrooms and what the findings were because not only was I able to see how a classroom was structured through the discussion of how that classroom was set up in the case study, but I could also see like what worked, what had a positive impact and what didn't. And that was so beneficial for me going forward because it gave me that that foundation, but because it also taught me that there isn't one right way to do this. There's not a right way. There's not a right system to follow. There's not a right like one here it is. The right way is the way that's going to have these desired outcomes achieved. The mm-hmm. right way is going to be the one that's going to work for you, your students, your community, your district. So that's my advice.
0: Yeah, it's... um Great advice from all of you. Um, I, I feel like we're just getting warmed up here. I feel like we've got another four hours in us. Um, we could spend another four hours talking about the nuances, the the intricacies. There, I mean, right there at the end, talking about you know taking those small steps and not thinking of it as this monumental shift, but all of these little incremental moves that we make that all add up to the little you know those short term wins that I think are so critical. Uh, Megan, you mentioned that as well. So, like I said, I I feel like maybe down the road we'll have to reconvene and do a part two of this conversation. Uh, Caitlin, uh, Megan, Elaine, I I just, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Uh, I think you've offered, your expertise is obvious and you've offered some great advice to listeners. So thanks so much.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to, to everybody.
1: This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode.
0: Urgency for ideas, but patience for people. That has been a mantra of mine for a while now. And many listeners would have remembered me talking about this before when I talked about leading assessment and grading reform back in the spring. Why is this such an important mantra? Well, let's consider the opposites. First, considering assessment and grading reform trivial would have us toiling in traditional practices that could not be more disjointed from our current instructional paradigm. The harvesting of points and the funneling of every assignment or behavioral action into grade determination simply reinforces grades as a thing. A grade should be a reflection of learning not a commodity that students acquire through the harvesting of points, but with a lack of urgency, we'll continue to do what we've always done. Why would we change or evolve, right? There's no rush. We don't even see a problem. We need a level of urgency. As I mentioned during the interview, we've been teaching to standards for a long while now. You think about this, a teacher who began their career in the fall of 2000 just finished their 21st year. They do not know this career without the existence of curricular standards. Now, grades based on the achievement of standards is not one of those flip a coin propositions. There has to be some urgency. Now, second, to be impatient with people is to create an unrealistic atmosphere around change. Assessment and grading are emotional topics, so to expect colleagues to just snap out of it seems an unreasonable ask. Now, this can happen with change. We explore, we reflect, we prepare, and now we're ready to go. And we expect everyone else to be right there with us. We're like, hey, I'm ready to go, what's up with you? And again, it doesn't work that way. Our colleagues also have to explore, unlearn, relearn, implement, revise, refine, go deeper. This all takes time. So to demonstrate impatience is to risk relationships. And if you're in a formal leadership position, kind of reveal a tone deafness that emphasizes an agenda at all costs. It's a plan over people. But these two ideas of course would never be together because if you were to treat assessment and grading reform as trivial, then there would be no need to be impatient with people because there would be zero urgency to change in the first place. The point is that urgency for assessment and grading is the only option. Patience is the only option for people grades will be as meaningful or as meaningless as the adults make them. I know currently there's a lot of conversation in schools and on social media about going gradeless. And while I fully understand and embrace the sentiment of that, I'm not sure going gradeless is in fact an option for teachers. When I meet people who say they've gone gradeless, I ask them, well, what do you do at the end of the semester? And they say, well, we still give grades. So I think the more honest assertion is that they grade less which i can fully get behind of course in the modern assessment paradigm there there's been close to 30 or more years of significant research into the use of feedback to improve student learning so the idea that we provide feedback in absence of grades and scores that's not a new one and it's certainly supported in academia now we assess because we have to you can't teach and develop anything without using assessment to guide decisions about interventions about extensions and next steps we grade when we need to in order to summarize or synthesize the overall levels of achievement that students have reached. Grades are not about improving achievement. You improve achievement through strategies and interventions. Grading is neither of those. Grading is measurement. So to those of you embarking on a grading reform journey, you have to know and remember that the question about how standards-based grading increases achievement is erroneous. Grades are inanimate objects, and again, they will only be as meaningful or as meaningless as we make them. No one I know is suggesting that grades are the most detailed or thorough way to communicate student learning. However, there will always be a need to summarize student achievement and find efficient and effective ways to communicate that to parents, to students themselves, and to other stakeholders and families, etc. And also colleges and universities. There, There are reasons for this. Teachers don't need grades to teach and students don't need grades to learn, but that doesn't mean grades are irrelevant or useless. We don't exist in a vacuum. Whether we're talking about holistic communication, about learning or achievement, whether we're talking about athletic eligibility, college applications, there is a viable need to communicate the degree to which a student has met the learning goals. So for me, the more efficient and effective investment of time is to ensure that grades communicate what we intend them to communicate. Grades cannot be everything to everyone, so it is essential that we first develop a collective clarity around the purpose of grades. What are we trying to communicate? And then make sure everything outside of that purpose is kept away from any grade determination. The more you want a grade to communicate, the less it will say any of it. Even with traditional letter grades, right? If a student earned a B, and that B was only a reflection of the quality of evidence the student produced, I think most teachers would have a pretty good idea of how competent that student was. But if that grade was about their level of achievement and how responsible they were, things start to get a little opaque. You don't know if this was a student who produced A quality work but behaved their way down the achievement scale or someone who produced C quality work and behaved their way up. Keep adding elements or aspects, and it will almost be a useless exercise. What exactly would a bee communicate when it's made up of the quality of evidence, the degree of responsibility, the levels of respect, the student's work ethic, their participation, their self directedness, their attitude, their assignment completion? Like, what would it mean? There would be no meaningful information that you could extract from that. And there is nothing soft about separating achievement from behavioral attributes. That assertion only comes from those wanting to use their gradebooks to leverage or coerce behavioral compliance. It's a control thing. In fact, I think you can argue that the separation actually brings more attention and profile to both. But in the end, we can never forget that grading is assessment. So no matter what philosophical position one might carve out, it still doesn't exempt our grading practices from being aligned to sound assessment principles and fundamentals. So for me, this is the most favorable approach to grading reform. It's an assessment conversation, not just a grading conversation. The schools and districts I've worked with that have been the most successful in revising and modernizing their grading practices are the ones who, in the long run, focus on a 360 degree examination of assessment. Yes, you can achieve some significant short-term wins when it comes to how we grade and report, and and we should pursue those. But long-term, It's important to expand our view to a more comprehensive examination of our assessment practices and the overall assessment culture. Now, as many of you know, my perspective is that we don't initiate grading reform with a new report card, a new computerized grading program, or a new board policy. That approach will almost always backfire. This change begins in the mind first, and then it works its way out into our practices. Grading from the inside out. We first have to examine and align what we think about grades before significant practices can permanently be be transformed. Now, some people will say to me, but Tom, we started with a new report card, or we started with a new computerized program to which I would respond. Well, then the people in your context were mentally ready for that change, because if they weren't, that change wouldn't have stuck. Spring a new report card, spring a new policy, spring a new program on people prematurely. And it will almost certainly backfire, maybe even permanently where you cannot reintroduce this topic again. I really believe that you have to first go there in the mind before you go there in action. It's not easy, but nothing ever worth doing is. Remember to follow the podcast to stay up to date on social media. That's at Tom Pod on Twitter. You can also follow me at Tom Shimmer on Twitter. Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube as well. You can email the podcast with any feedback or questions you have for me. It's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Please subscribe, follow, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, as I always say. And please keep spreading the word about the podcast. I really do appreciate that. Happy summer, everyone.